You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all want to turn back time for some reason or other. We don't have a time machine. Not yet, at least. <laughs> well, so we have to rely on other schemes for retrograde travel. Such as taking a journey with our minds. Journalist Michael Malone got interested in memory years ago after he was called to his father's hospital bedside by doctors. Yeah, it was a very strange experience. Uh, my father had uh, injured himself in a fall, head injury. And he was semi-comatose and in the uh, intensive care area at Valley Medical Center in San Jose, California. And I went down to visit him, and I was met by the doctor as I walked into the care area. And he said, can you come in and look at your dad? And I said, yeah, absolutely. And we went in. He says, it's the strangest thing. We don't quite know what he's doing. And I walked in. There was my dad lying there, and he he, he was taking oxygen, so he had a kind of a mask on. And he had his hands up in the air in front of him, and he was flicking his fingers. And the doctor said, he's been doing that for about half an hour, and we don't know what he's doing. So I got down real close, uh, knelt down, put my ear next to his mouth, and I could hear him whispering. And I turned around to the doctor, and I said, he's doing the pre-flight checkout of a B-17 bomber. And I said, this is this sort of amazing because the fact that he can remember the pre-flight on a plane he hasn't been in in almost 50 years is just mind-boggling. And I began to think, if he has all of that in there, is his entire life still in there? Do we all have our every experience we've ever had in our lives? Because, yeah, it's one thing to remember being in combat, but to go through the checkout list and know where the switches are on the, on the panel, that struck me as an amazing feat of memory. And maybe if it was there in him, it was there in all of us. Michael Malone went on to cover memory, you could say, as a technology reporter in Silicon Valley. And we'll hear more about what he learned later in the show. But the story of his father being able to recall a flight checkout sequence from 50 years earlier prompts us to wonder to what degree we could ever revert to the way things were, not just by the use of recall, but physically as well. Are there ways of recapturing the past? I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. It's As You Were on Big Picture Science. That the pool of wild animals is diminishing should come as no surprise. The loss of wildlife biodiversity is both well-known and of great concern. 
And seeing wild creatures everywhere is, for most of us, just past tense. But imagine our planet as it once was, a zoocopia of exotic animals. Animals only a few of us have been fortunate enough to see and will never see again. The golden toad, living in Costa Rica, it looked just like it sounds. The Javan tiger, last spotted in Indonesia in the late 1970s. The passenger pigeon, one of the most tragic of modern extinction stories. Hunted on a massive scale, its numbers plummeted at the turn of the last century until the sole passenger pigeon named Martha died alone in the Cincinnati Zoo in 1914. The small, white, nearly blind Baji River dolphin has been designated functionally extinct since 2006. And some animals disappeared so long ago that their names are totally unfamiliar to us now. The thylacine, the quagga, the Pyrenean ibex, the bubal hartebeest. This is a dramatic case of wishing we could turn back time. Dreams of Jurassic Park technology are just that. These creatures are likely lost to us forever. So Oliver Ryder wants to prevent other animals from going the way of the dodo. The San Diego Zoo geneticist has hopes of using the technology of stem cells, the body's renewable cells, to prevent some animals from slipping into the past tense, such as the white rhino. Globally, the world's rhinos have been disappearing dramatically um, over the last several decades. Since the 1960s, the numbers have dropped probably over 90%. The northern white rhinoceros is the most uh, endangered form of rhinoceros. It's actually on the brink of extinction, and there's not actually a sustainable population to keep the species going. The last individuals capable of breeding are a grandfather and his granddaughter and a father and his daughter. So the future of the species is is at the moments of twilight. So if nothing were done, this this animal would go extinct? Well, efforts are underway to try to interbreed northern white rhinos with, with a related species, the southern white rhino. But they have been evolutionarily distinct for millions of years, and it's not clear that that's going to work. And even if it does, it would still mean the extinction of the northern white rhinoceros. So how could stem cells help protect this rhinoceros? Well, I'm beginning to speculate here, but the remarkable thing about stem cells is they're capable of becoming any cell in the body. And in the most well-described mammalian model for stem cells, the laboratory mouse, stem cells have been able to produce sperm and eggs. And so one avenue is that having stem cells could produce germplasm that could be used in a program with uh, surviving northern white rhinos to expand their numbers. Now, since a stem cell can, in theory or in, in likelihood, become any kind of cell, does the stem cell need to come from the animal, in this case the rhinoceros, or could you take stem cells from any animal, even a human, which is an animal, and use it to help save this rhinoceros? What we, the current state of our understanding is that cells from any individual in a species can be reprogrammed to be able to produce any of the cells from that individual. But the cells of an individual rhinoceros will produce all of the cells, are capable of producing all the cells of a rhinoceros. The cells of a mouse are capable of reproducing all the cells of a mouse. So in order to 
begin to consider utilizing an approach like this, one would have to have a collection of stem cells from a number of individuals. And how do you get those stem cells from an animal? In this case, we're, we're still talking about the white rhinoceros. How do you get the stem cells from that animal? Well, stem cells are extremely difficult to get, but it is, it is much easier, although not simple, from a rhinoceros to get adult cells, to get somatic cells, to get cells from the body, like skin cells. And for over 25-year period, uh, we've been collecting skin cells from northern white rhinoceroses and establishing those in cell culture and freezing them. The remarkable uh, recent development is the work that shows that it's possible to take these skin cells and induce them to become stem cells. Uh, John Gurdon and Shimya Yamanaka won the Nobel Prize for development of stem cell technology, and it was Professor Yamanaka who showed that it was possible to turn um, skin cells into stem cells. How far have you gotten in this? Have you actually created a, a white rhinoceros in the lab or any other endangered animal? No, we're very far from creating animals in the laboratory. Um, we're excited uh, for several species, several endangered species, with our collaborators in Gene Loring's lab at the Scripps Research Institute. It's been possible to take skin cells from endangered species and reprogram them to become stem cells. We know that they have the characteristics of stem cells that we can assay in the laboratory. We have not yet taken these cells and actually tried to uh, make embryos or produce animals with them yet. There's still quite a bit of basic work that needs to be done. Well, can you give me an, an overview of how this would work? As an overview of how this might proceed, after we have obtained uh, induced pluripotent stem cells uh, from an endangered species, after the uh, skin cells have been turned into cells that could become any cell in the body, we might culture those in the laboratory in a way to direct their development to produce uh, sperm or eggs. Producing sperm and eggs would allow techniques like in vitro fertilization or embryo transfer. Those techniques are worked out in a number of species, especially domestic animals and especially humans. Those techniques have not been worked out in rhinos yet. What other animals do you hope to protect? Well, in the big picture, we need to undertake some studies to begin to collect information that would answer that question. Right now, all the cloning efforts have been uh, done in mammals. So there's a lot of fundamental work in cell culture that has to be done. And then the nearest opportunities we can see would be species for which there's already work going on that incorporates knowledge of the reproductive physiology and the reproductive biology of the animals. So these would be domestic species. And so relatives of cattle or relatives of sheep, of which there are, um, you know, numerous endangered species, relatives of domestic cats, many of the small species of cats in the wild are, are highly endangered. So we're going through looking at potential opportunities to decide how this, how this might go forward.
And and finally, what you're doing is saving animals from extinction. You wouldn't be able to apply this technique to bringing animals back from extinction, for example, in the fictional Jurassic Park where dinosaurs are brought back to life. Well, Jurassic Park is a great story, but it's it's you know, it it's not compliant with our current technologies and I believe there are fundamental challenges involved in working from you know, highly fragmented, degraded, small DNA fragments. The critical gap in thinking about bringing back extinct species has to do with the ability to create a cell that has the genome of the extinct species in it. And um, you, nobody can create a cell and nobody can take fragments of DNA and in a wholesale way introduce those in a cell to produce the genome to produce the chromosomes of a species that's that's gone extinct for which there's only poor quality dna samples available so it's you know it's risky to predict what can happen in the future but what's happening right now is that many species are at the brink of extinction saving materials from them offers chances for young scientists in the future to undertake approaches that we are not capable of doing now. But if we don't save cells now, they won't be capable of doing it at all. Oliver Ryder, thank you so much for speaking with us. You're welcome. Oliver Ryder is Director of Genetics, San Diego Zoo Institute for Conservation Research. Next, the arrow of time runs in one direction, right? Well, objects decay, cells age, you can crack an egg but not uncrack an egg and all that. But what if that's wrong? A cosmologist weighs in. Relax, it's As You Were on Big Picture Science. This episode is presented by Chemists in the Kitchen by LabX, a YouTube video series spotlighting the power of chemistry and how science and food can bring people together. In each episode, real scientists walk you through things like making your own cheese at home, the chemistry behind souffles, methods for botanical infusions, the formula for perfect deep-fried chicken, and much more. It's a love letter to science, cooking, and individuality with some great tips on how you can apply real scientific principles to your everyday cooking. Plus, it's just a lot of fun. Season 3 is airing right now, and you can catch up with every episode for free on YouTube by searching Chemists in the Kitchen or going to youtube.com slash labxnas. That's youtube.com slash labxnas. X-N-A-S. Welcome back to Big Picture Science, as you were, a look at to what extent we can revert to some prior state. 
Oliver Ryder talked about an approach using stem cells. Now, these are the cells that have the potential to develop into any kind of bodily cell. Stem cells are pristine and adaptable. Which is Michael Smith's goal for materials of the future. He wants objects to stay immaculate, resistant to damage, the wearing of time, guaranteed not to chip, crack, fade, flake, or peel for the life of the product. His company, Arkema Incorporated, is developing supramolecular polymers that would do just that, revert to their pre-damaged condition. Mike Smith is taking advantage of chemistry at the molecular level. So first, let's begin with the concept of supramolecular polymers. So supramolecular polymers are made with both permanent and reversible connections. Okay, these connections are those between atoms within the molecules, otherwise known as chemical bonds. He's interested in the reversible bonds because... Most polymers, like the plastic your milk jug is made out of, has only permanent connections. But we wanted to make materials that would have both reversible and permanent connections to give them new performance properties. And those properties would allow them to heal right before your eyes. Well, the idea is that in nature, the DNA molecule is made up of both permanent and reversible connections. There's the permanent ones that make the strands... And then there's the connections between the two pieces of what we call the double helix that can come apart and come back together. And we were trying to mimic that so that we can have things such as self-repairing or self-healing plastics. Well, can you give me some examples of why this would be interesting? Well, an example would be if you could have this sort of performance in the coating on the outside of, say, your vehicle, where after you have a scratch or a bump, it would slowly repair itself without you having to do anything yourself. Well, it sounds like my skin, which fortunately still seems capable of self-repair, but it, but it isn't doing that with reversible molecules. It just builds new skin. Well, that's right. There are different mechanisms by which people have explored the idea of self-repair. In the case of your skin, you have cells that are actively doing that. But in this case, we're looking at something a lot simpler. So even though the paint on your car is a fairly complicated mixture, it is much simpler than your body. Okay, so self-healing. I can see self-healing coatings. Some sort of, I don't know, paint coat you could give my car, right? Then all the scratches and dents, they just go away if I wait long enough, and all I have to do is hope that the, the rate at which I'm getting new dents is slower than the time it takes to repair the old ones. What, what other kind of applications might this be interesting for? Well, we have a very creative one that uh, we've been working with a professor at North Carolina State, and in fact, our publication is going to come out soon, for actually self-repairing wires. Self-repairing wires? You mean in, in a circuit somewhere? I mean, some piece of electronics? Yes, exactly. So the professor had already discovered a way to have a special type of metal that will repair its electrical connection if it is severed and then reconnected. And so we worked with him providing the outer coating or insulation so that he can now demonstrate by cutting the wires, he can essentially rewire a circuit by just using a pair of scissors and then putting the pieces back together. Boy, that, that almost sounds creepy. I mean, it, it sounds sort of like the Terminator. You know, you could do anything you wanted to the Terminator, but it, it was never successful if you were trying to get rid of him because he would just sort of reconstitute himself. But, but we're not really talking about that. Fortunately, it's not quite as malevolent as that, and it's also not quite as powerful. Yeah, I see. Okay, so how are you doing? I mean, have you got some materials that, uh, that, that actually do this, at least in the lab? Yes, absolutely. We actually have a video on our website which demonstrates uh, a researcher cutting the piece of rubber and then putting it back together. When you do this, it takes about three to five minutes to recover most of its original strength. 
Well, Mike, as this material self-heals, can you actually see it doing that? Yes, actually you can. So this material is a clear, stretchy, rubbery material. And when you cut it into two pieces, it looks like Play-Doh that will always go back to its original shape. And when you put the two pieces together, it molds together almost instantly so that when you pull it after a couple of minutes, it's as if the piece had never been cut, but there's just a very faint line if you look very carefully. Some people accuse me of doing magic, but it is just good material science, even though we did get an inquiry from a magician in India just last week on our website. And how long does it take to come back together? So when you cut the piece and you put the pieces back together, if you were to start to pull them apart just five seconds later, you would see that it was already starting to form. It will stretch before it starts to break at the same point. And in about two minutes, you can pull on it and extend it to almost double its length with almost no visible mark. And after about 15 minutes, it's regained nearly all of its original strength. My goodness. Now, can you explain to me a little bit how this actually works? Because just having some connections between atoms and a molecule that are reversible, which means they can go back to the way they were before something happened to them, I mean, uh, how how does that explain how you get self-repairing car paint? Well, if you remember the example I gave of DNA, the connecting bonds between the two strands in DNA use something called complementary base pairs. So some people have heard of that from their biology class. And what that means is you have two molecules that are kind of like a lock and key. They have shapes and chemical structures that make them prefer to be adjacent to each other than to other molecules that might be similar. So what we did is we essentially made our own lock and key. And so when you separate two pieces and bring them back together, they find a new partner and reform that connection. But when you scratch the paint on your car, it's not that you're breaking the paint molecules, is it? It just seems to me that you're just removing some of them. Well, if you actually perform a gouge, then that is much more difficult to repair because an actual gouge has removed material. But most of your scratches are actually breaking chains of plastics or polymers because they are a significant component of what makes the paint hold together. You know, when I'm sitting around uh, uh, talking to people at a dinner or something and uh, they say, well, you know, what are going to be the big technical advances of this century? I usually throw out the idea that this will be finally the, the period in uh, Homo sapiens' long history where we get away from the traditional materials that, have, that we've been using for thousands of years, you know, iron, steel, concrete, whatever, all the things that we make the structures of our civilization out of that we're going to be developing all these new materials, because we can. Finally, we can. Do you, do you see it that way? I mean, you might be biased, but do you see it that way? Well, I do believe that we're going to replace quite a number of things in our uh, society in terms of materials of construction. I think you're going to see a lot more complex plastics and polymers, including things that use these sorts of self-healing materials. Because they're lighter weight, they are often stronger. And in the case of this material and many of the other ones, some of the ingredients that go into it are actually bio-based. They come from nature. So one of the key components in this system actually comes from soybean oil. Oh, my goodness. Well, Mike Smith, thank you so much for uh, talking with me. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for your time, Seth. Michael Smith is a chemist at Arkema Incorporated. Okay, let's back it up now. I mean, really throw things into reverse. And for the kind of retrograde motion we're talking about, we need a physicist in the driver's seat. Sean Carroll has a 
different concept of time than most of us. Like us, he lives in a world where time moves in one direction. Objects decay, cells age, unfortunately. We can easily scramble an egg, but find that unscrambling it and returning the contents to an undamaged shell is not so easy. But for Sean Carroll, whose laboratory is the universe after all, there exists the mind-bending idea that, theoretically, things could move in the opposite direction, opposite of what we know as the arrow of time. The arrow of time, besides being, you know, my favorite thing to do research on, is just the fact that the past is different from the future in our world. It's such an obvious, blatant fact that we don't even spend time thinking about it. But, you know, there's no arrow of space. If you were out there in in space, there'd be no difference between up, down, left, and right. But in our lives, there's a huge difference between yesterday and tomorrow. That's the arrow of time. Okay, well, I think you're right. I believe that very few of us actually think much about time, certainly not about its nature, just its implications. But we can go backwards and forwards in space. I mean, the gearshift knob on my car proves that. So there must be really something very fundamentally interesting about the fact that there's sort of a one-way sign when it comes to time. Yeah, in fact, so there's two things going on here. I mean, there's more than two, but but your sentence included two things. One is the fact that there's only one dimension of time as opposed to three dimensions of space. So we can go in circles in space in a way that we can't go in circles in time. There's only sort of one direction in which you can possibly go. But then there's also the fact that if in our mental travel through time, we can travel to the past and to the future, right? We can contemplate yesterday and contemplate tomorrow. But yesterday is different than tomorrow. For example, I remember what happened yesterday. I don't remember what happened tomorrow. The universe was smaller yesterday than it will be tomorrow. So it's really the fact that conditions in the universe are changing in one direction as we go from the past to the future. And the laws of physics don't know about that. The laws of physics have no difference built into them between yesterday and tomorrow, and that's where the mysteries come in. Why is this so? Many people will assume it's because they know that entropy always increases overall, even though they don't know what entropy is. <laughs> but, but, they do, but they do know that they can cook an egg, but they can't uncook an egg. They can't turn that omelet back into, a, back into an egg. So, you know, there's this preferred direction of time. Do we have any understanding about why this is? We actually have a lot of understanding, but our understanding is just good enough to let us be very, very precise about what the remaining mysteries are. So we know what entropy is. It's a, the casual definition is the measure of disorderliness of the universe, and that works fine. We have more mathematical definitions if you want them. And it goes up. The universe becomes messier, more disorderly with time, and we know why that's true. What we don't know is why it was smaller in the past. Why was the entropy of the universe lower yesterday than it will be tomorrow? And you can say, well, that's because of the second law of thermodynamics, which says entropy goes up with time, which means it goes down with with negative time, right? (laughs) But that's begging the question, why is the second law of thermodynamics true? And ultimately, it's because of 13.7 billion years ago at the Big Bang, the entropy was really, really low. It's ultimately a cosmology question. Why did the universe begin in such a very, very special, highly organized state? Once we have that, then it makes perfect sense to us that it becomes more and more messy and disorganized over time. Okay, so we can can describe how it ages and we can sort of understand that, but we don't understand the conditions of its birth, if you will. The universe was born with very, very low entropy. And, you know, I suppose if you were a religious type, you would say, well, that's the simplest thing for God to create. But for a physicist, it's hard to get a paper like that published. 
So <laughs> is, is it likely that physics will come up with an answer to why the universe began in this very, very highly ordered state? Well, you know, we're trying. That's the delicious thing about doing science is that when the question is answered, we put it in the drawer and we move on to the question we don't know the answer to. So all this wonderful work by 19th century brilliant physicists like Ludwig Boltzmann explained to us how entropy works. And now we 21st century cosmologists are trying to come up with theories, mechanisms that explain why the birth of the universe was featuring this low entropy condition. And, you know, I wrote a whole book about it, in case I haven't mentioned that yet, about my own attempts to do it. And literally, as I'm saying this sentence, I am visiting MIT, collaborating with Alan Guth, who's in the office next to me, about writing a new theory about why the early universe had low entropy. So that's what we're doing. That's what we get paid the big bucks to do, and so we're trying our best. <laughs> and those bucks will be bigger tomorrow, I, I assume. <laughs> but would it be true that time only goes in one direction, that you're unfortunately condemned to go into the future rather than the past, would that be true no matter where in the cosmos I went? Could there be some part of the universe where going backwards in time would be an everyday thing? Well, yes and no is the short answer. We can certainly come up with cosmological scenarios of like a very, very big universe, much bigger than what we actually observe, but it could be out there and just not yet seen by us where in some parts of this universe, the arrow of time points in the other direction. So from our point of view, in those regions, entropy would be higher in the past and lower in the future. But the point is that what we call the past and future is defined by entropy. So the people who lived in those regions would say that the entropy was lower in the past and higher in the future, and they would think that we were going backwards. So nobody would be turning their scrambled eggs back into uncooked eggs. They would always remember the direction of time in which entropy was lower. Gee, that, that doesn't sound very satisfying somehow. Well, <laughs> you should be satisfied. It means that everyone sees the arrow of time point in the sensible direction. I see. Well, okay. Well, maybe I am satisfied. I mean, I, I have to ask you the question I'm sure you get most often— at dinner parties, other than maybe could you pass the salt, and that is, could we ever build a time machine? Could, could we do what they do in the movies and visit the past? Yeah, the short answer is no, we can't. That is not something I can say with absolute certainty, because we don't understand the ultimate laws of physics well enough to say. What we do understand about the laws of physics seems to make it very, very difficult to go in the past, even before you get into paradoxes about killing your parents before they met and gave birth to you. Just literally getting there seems to be something the laws of physics don't want to let you do. But it's not something we completely understand. So there's a little bit of wriggle room, a little possible loophole that says once we understand the laws of physics better, maybe we could build a time machine. We'll have to wait and see. Well, finally, Jean, let's just suppose, because it's so much more fun to suppose this, that sometime we could build a time machine. Suppose we could build one next, next week. Where would you go? You know, it's very, very dangerous because when we think of moments in the past, we think of the fun parts of those moments, and there's always plenty of places in the world at any one moment of time that are actually quite dangerous, and as you go to the past, those those places become more and more frequent. You know, I would love to go and chat with Galileo, you know, study up on my Italian, and uh, be there at the moment when we went from this teleological, Aristotelian view of the world to the one where... There were, you know, the Earth was not at the center of the universe, and particles left to their own devices keep moving forever, whether or not you push them and just 
get a feeling for what that was like to be turning your telescope onto the sky for the first time. Sean Carroll, thanks so much for uh, going into the past with us. Sure, my pleasure, Seth. Theoretically, Sean Carroll is a theoretical physicist at the California Institute of Technology and the author most recently of The Particle at the End of the Universe, How the Hunt for the Higgs Boson Leads Us to the Edge of a New World. So Sean Carroll would go back in time to talk to Galileo, if he could, if we had a time machine. Yes, yes. Well, I can understand that. I mean, that that was a sort of a pivot point in history, so I can understand his interest. Now, where would you go back in time if you could? Well, you know, there are a lot of things, but Molly, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I happened to be in Italy, and I went to Pompeii again, Uh, and you see all these dug-up buildings. It's very impressive, but we actually know rather little about what happened at Pompeii, so I would like to go back to 79 AD and kind of watch. You'd want to go back at the time right before the volcanic explosion? Yes, during the explosion of Vesuvius that wiped out Pompeii, uh, because, you know, we have very few accounts of what happened. There was this guy, Pliny the Younger, and he wrote about it. But, you know, a lot of what he wrote got lost. Some of it managed to make it 2,000 years into the future so we could read it. But, you know, as far as we know, not a single person who lived in Pompeii, and there were like 20,000 of them at the time, actually survived that eruption. And yet, maybe that's wrong. Maybe a lot of them did. It's just that we don't have any reported sources. So it would be fun to go back and check it out. So if you went back, what would be the big question that you'd want to answer, and how would you answer it? Yeah, you'd have to stay outside of town, of course, in order not to get wiped out yourself. But I would be interested in, for example, the rescue operation that the Romans sent down there when this this whole eruption began. They sent a whole bunch of ships down to that part of the Italian coast, and nobody knows whether they were able to haul people away or whether that was just a waste of time. So it would be to simply watch the events just so we would have more than just a dug-up town, but we would have the real story of what happened. Okay, maybe it's not so easy to travel back in time, but one rider would settle for heading in that direction for just a few years to a time before the onslaught of modern technology. And he's discovered others who will cough up serious cashola to do just that. It's As You Were on Big Picture Science. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. We're wondering what it takes to be as we were on Big Picture Science. Now, I doubt I'm the only one who's nostalgic for the technology of long ago. And by this, I mean 1998, although I would take 2003. I've always resisted buying the latest gadget. Long after it was passé, I relied on a home answering machine for messages, which I checked using a payphone. And if I've lost you on that, Google an image of an old Superman movie. By the time I caught up with the modern world and got a cell phone... I said no to all the extras. I wanted one that would make and receive calls only. That's it. Well, then there's today. Hear that sucking sound? That's the pull on your attention space by an omnigatherum of technological temptation. Calls, videos, texts, pop-ups, aggregate news sites, Facebook updates, tweets, 
And that's just on your iPhone. It's a black hole pulling you into the depths until you look up and discover you've done nothing productive for the last three and a half hours. Writer Pico Iyer describes a liberating black hole, a cultural trend to create physical areas where digital media is non-existent. Now, to call him a Luddite seems perhaps too strong, but maybe that is the word for someone who favors technology pre-millennium. Pico Iyer has made a conscious effort to live his life with minimal stuff, and he writes about it in his New York Times article, The Joy of Quiet, a timeless tribute to moments of silence and solitude that describes just how far people will go to get away from the latest Twitter feed. And he recently escaped the buzz of technology by trying out a monastery in California where something else assaulted his ears, silence. And the way I heard about this monastery was from a friend who teaches high school. And he said he took his students up there every year, and even the most uh, clamorous, (laughs) testosterone-driven, hormone-addled, restless, itchy 15-year-old Californian boy only had to be released to silence for a couple of days. And very quickly, he fell into a kind of deeper self and a much happier self to the point that he never wanted to leave. And I think of it almost like an oil change with your car or something. Silence is an ecumenical cleanser. And when I go to the monastery, most of the people, other people staying there, real estate, salespeople, executive vice presidents, actresses, people really caught in the cacophony of the world who are aware that they can only make sense of the world by stepping out of it. Now, I understand that one of the reasons that no cell phone will ring around you is that you don't own a cell phone. Is that true? And how, how do the people who want to talk to you get in touch? <laughs> it is true. And I think I functioned the way I did in 1995, when not only I had no cell phone, but uh, nobody I knew had even heard of cell phones in this country. In Hong Kong and Japan, they were just beginning to get into them then. But it's amazing how quickly we become addicted to machines that we existed quite happily without not so long ago. Now, now you write in the article that people have gone and are beginning to go to extreme lengths to get away from it all. And it, is, it, is it true that there are hotels you can go to where you can pay hundreds, maybe thousands of dollars a night for a guarantee that that room will not have internet connection. Yes, they're called black hole resorts and many of the people I most respect who really follow the travel industry closely say that this is the trend of the future. There's one hotel in Big Sur, California, not very far from where you and I are sitting now, where you can pay $2,265 a night for the privilege of not having a TV in your room. Uh, And once a magazine actually sent me on assignment, so I wasn't paying, the magazine was paying, and it was the only night of the year when I did want to watch the TV because it was the night of the Academy Awards and the only thing I do watch every year. So I was wishing I was in a $30 a night motel that night. But um, and, And other resorts, which are very specifically resorts, offer the chance for you to hand your cell phone over to them at check-in or do a variety of things just to allow you to be free. I have two friends who are journalists who maintain an internet Sabbath and every night, every week from Friday night to Monday morning, both of them and their teenage son turn off all their machines and recover these almost forgotten ancient traditions known as conversation and family meals because they have discovered, as so many families have across the country, that otherwise all three of them would sit at the same table and busily tweet and and text their friends. The the thing that most strikes me is that uh, I think it's often the people in the forefront of the technological revolution who are most conscious of some of the, not drawbacks, but at least the limitations of new technology and aware of the things that it can't 
enable us to do. And that's why when I visited the Google campus, I was so impressed, as everybody is, by the meditation rooms and the playgrounds and the fact that I think every employee has 20 or 25% of his week free, because that's where the creativity comes. When I wrote this article, The Joy of Quiet, in the New York Times, uh, one very celebrated um, champion of the internet and one of its great innovators got in touch with me and he said, have you heard about um, these internet sabbaths? Many of us in Silicon Valley, in fact, observe them. What you're talking about now, these, these enforced periods where you're not allowed to get on the internet or you pay extra for, in case, hundreds of dollars extra for rooms so you can't get on, it speaks to our willpower, our lack of it. So what you're suggesting is we're engaged in very compulsive behavior. We're addicted. We're addicted to our technology. Wonderfully said. And the problem, of course, just as you say, lies not in technology, but in us. And when I go to these extreme measures, it's mostly not because I distrust technology, but I distrust myself to be able to find, just as you were saying, the self-discipline or self-restraint to make my peace with it. And I know the sensation. For example, uh, at the monastery I go to, they've recently acquired more or less wireless service. Uh, And then maybe consciously they now deny it to those of us who are visiting for a few days. And I think many people who go up there initially are in a state of shock, horror, maybe rage, that they can't get online, and then suddenly feel a sense of relief that they realize how it opens them up. But you're right, our first impulse is to use it. And I remember, um, until very recently, I only had dial-up, which is almost like not having anything in my home in rural Japan. And finally, um, my internet provider terminated dial-up, so I had no choice, and I had to go to the more usual forms. And I said to a friend of mine, I'm traumatized, I don't know what to do with it. And he said, well, you don't have to log on all the time. And I said, of course, no, I don't. But just lying in bed every night, knowing that there are six billion voices and all the information and all the diversion in the world in the same room, it requires almost heroic self-discipline not to start accessing it and actually to turn to the real world instead of our images of the world. Pico Iyer, thank you so much. Thank you, it's been a real pleasure. Pico Iyer is a writer, and you can find a link to his New York Times article, The Joy of Quiet, on our website, bigpicturescience.org. Okay, one of the ways we gauge our travel into the future is by how well we remember the past. We do this today with data storage, megabytes, gigabytes, terabytes, and all that. At the beginning of this program, journalist Michael Malone described his own wonderment at his ailing father's uncanny recitation of the flight checkout sequence for a B-52 bomber from 50 years earlier. Witnessing this prompted Michael to research the subject of memory. And cover it, in a sense. Michael Malone is a technology reporter in Silicon Valley, and now he has a book, The Guardian of All Things, The Epic Story of Human Memory, which includes not just our personal memories, but the evolution of our effort to hold on to the past electronically. One of the things that motivated me to actually follow the story of memory was I was a cub reporter for the San Jose Mercury News. And I, and I guess history now records, my, at least my Wikipedia page suggests that I was the uh, very first daily high-tech reporter in the world. And I was running around doing the first stories on Apple, which was just Steve and Steve at that point, and other startup companies, as well as the Hewlett Packards. And I remember sitting after a press conference with a group of trade press reporters and editors and just raving about what an amazing thing was going on in Silicon Valley, my own backyard. I'd grown up and I hadn't even known it was going on. And they kind of got a sour face and they said, well, don't get too excited, kid, because 
you know, it isn't going to last much longer. And I said, well, I don't understand. You know, there's Moore's Law. Things are going to take off. This is 1979. Things are going to take off. You know, it's going to keep going forever. And I said, no, no, you don't understand. Logic works according to Moore's Law, but memory doesn't. And memory is an electromechanical process. There's no way on earth that memory is going to keep up with logic. Well, well, well let's just go back to those not-so-golden uh, moments of yesteryear because I had a personal computer in 1979, and I had some 8-inch floppies. Was that what they were talking about, that, you know, you could get 256K on a floppy? It's never going to be very interesting in terms of the amount of data? Yes, and that was because you had to have a physical object and you had to move it past a read-write head in order to get enough information on and off whatever this medium was. And I remember we started out with 8-inch and went to 5 and a quarter inch floppy, which is a big deal. But I just coveted the Apple Profile hard disk. And my Apple III cost, I think, $3,500 or $4,000. And for only another $4,000, you could buy a 5-megabyte hard disk drive. And it was, it was literally the size of the computer. It sat on the computer, and then you put the monitor on top of that. And I remember thinking, God, if I could just have the idea of 5 megabytes was just almost beyond imagination. And then I kind of paused and I said, I'll never need 5 megabytes. I don't even know what I would use 5 megabytes for. So the notion was, at least among the cognoscenti of uh, the trade press, was it, it, you just couldn't build a mechanical thing, you know, a platter spinning around with a read-write head floating above it, you know, using a cushion of air. You just couldn't get enough density to build anything that would have sufficient memory storage to match what was going on over on the other side of the fence, which was microprocessors moving up towards ever faster processing speeds, spinning out megabits per second. You just couldn't do it. Well, what really has happened? Because they've gone beyond the five megabyte drive. They sure have. And that's what really I think is the great untold story of the digital age is not the story of the microprocessor. It's not the story of consumer electronics or software or applications. It's memory. Because these guys were not on Moore's Law. They were having to scramble and scrape and invent to try to keep up. And they did it along multiple fronts. They realized tape wasn't going to do it after a while. But magnetic memory probably would. And they put it on platters so we have disk drives. But they were also pursuing optical memory, bubble memory, even chip memory. The problem with chip memory was you couldn't do it fast enough. Even Moore's Law didn't help you with memory chips. You couldn't get them powerful enough with enough capacity to take over all the stuff that you needed to store. But the genius of the memory business, and it's not a monolithic thing, it's a whole bunch of different companies competing against each other. One would find a new technique and drive it for 10 years and then, then get destroyed. Somehow they just kept handing off this torch back and forth. And really, the ending of that particular memory story is the introduction of the iPod. The very first iPod had a disk drive in it. But three years later, the second generation iPod had solid-state chip memory. At that point, memory chips had gotten powerful enough that they could take the baton for the last time and run. What an achievement. 50 years, and they kept up with the fastest rate of development the world has ever seen, which was semiconductor logic. We're talking here about the last half century indeed, but this isn't the first revolution in being able to, if you will, offload our memories. I mean, okay, 10,000 years ago, the only way you could pass information, if you will, literature, whatever it is, 
from one generation to the next was to tell somebody. I mean, you couldn't even write it down 10,000 years ago. But what other major breakthroughs have there been in, if you will, the technology of memory? There's been quite a few, interestingly. We know about them, but we don't put them into the memory category. I think all of humanity is haunted by the years after the fall of the Roman Empire, because that's the one period in human history that we know of where we forgot everything. We lost our memory. And we got a glimpse of what happens when you lose your memory. Ultimately, civilization is about taking all of our acquired knowledge, that is, our memory, and passing it on to the next generation. And if you miss that handoff, civilization collapses. And now it's 620 AD, and you're in the Dark Ages, and you're looking at Roman ruins and thinking giants must have walked the earth because we don't know how to build these things anymore. And everything goes back to fang and tooth again. So we've always been obsessed with not losing that memory. And it became, you know, after the Dark Ages became even more incumbent upon us. Don't ever let this happen again. In terms of memory storage, language is a form of memory. Until we developed some sort of spoken language, we really couldn't convey any knowledge into the future. Language enabled us to create metaphors and analogies, which allowed us to convey an awful lot of condensed information to the next generation. Writing is the next one. And you can see writing is one of those things, it appears almost out of nowhere, and then it takes off very, very fast. The Sumerians, the Egyptians, because of the sheer power of it. Some of the hieroglyphics that were done 5,000 years ago are still in pretty good shape. We have Gilgamesh, which is the oldest story in the world. And stories are a great way of conveying memory. Gilgamesh survived because it was done on clay tablets, and happily... The uh, library burned down, and it baked the clay tablets solid. So we have this story that's, that's 4,000 years old, which is an extraordinary thing that we still have it. Well, what do you see for the future? I mean, you use the phrase stepping into our machines. I mean, we've offloaded our memories in a way. I mean, you, you can't have a discussion at a dinner anymore when somebody says, well, now, who was in that movie or whatever? Just a moment. I'll look it up right? Couldn't do that when I was a kid. Right? Uh, so we've offloaded the memory. When are we going to offload the intellect, or is that what we're going to do next? There's a whole bunch of different scenarios out ahead that none of which I don't, I, I don't know how to weigh them according to their likelihood. One of them is memory just keeps going, Moore's Law keeps going, and we end up with the Ray Kurzweil singularity experience where our computers are as smart as we are, and we just download our all of our neurons, the location of our neurons and where all the electricity is, into the computer. And so we now clone ourselves into a machine and we gain immortality that way. I personally find that terrifying, but some people find that very appealing. Gordon Bell has gone a whole different route. He is recording his whole life. He wears all this equipment, and he's getting less and less because of Moore's Law. He used to be really freighted down with all this stuff. <laughs> but he's tracking every second of his life, every conversation he has, everything he does. And if we believe that things are going to live on the, on the Internet forever, then he has found another kind of immortality. He won't be here, but his contrail will be visible till the end of time. I think Kurzweil doesn't want to die. He wants us to be alive forever. 
I don't think Gordon thinks that's that important. He just wants to be remembered. All of us, we don't want to die and be forgotten. Yeah, he wants his life to live forever. If it, uh, yeah. Yes, exactly. And then, by the way, there's one other scenario, which is the Carrington event, which is, you know, the sun blows out some massive electromagnetic blast, hits the Earth, as it did in the 1870s, and just melts everything, everything electronic. This is a real fear. I mean, I said... Gilgamesh is still around because we have the clay tablets. We have the hieroglyphics from Egypt. We have the Inca not messaging. We have a lot of stuff that's been around for a long, long time. Everything we have now is increasingly magnetic, which makes all the memory we have increasingly vulnerable. So we may have 10 to the ninth times as much memory stored as we did in the 1600s, but all of that stuff now is increasingly sitting in an electronic format which one big blast of electromagnetic waves could erase forever. Michael Malone, thanks so much for being with us. Great to be here. Michael Malone is a professor of professional writing at Santa Clara University, and he is the author of The Guardian of All Things, The Epic Story of Human Memory. Thanks to our production team, which has never passed its prime, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also support from Rena Sholsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced here at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to As You Were. You can find more Big Picture Science on iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer over-the-air radio because that's what you listen to in your bygone youth, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.